Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. What a blessing to, uh, yeah, to gather, to praise our awesome God and Savior. Just a couple of announcements. This is the last week of holidays, so the Wednesday ladies' study as well as the Friday studies are in recess until the following week. Um, And look forward to gathering up again at that time. Uh, There are a couple of things coming up that we should probably meet and talk about. Um, So I'm thinking after service next week, we'll have just a a brief meeting talking about an upcoming biblical dinner, as well as the camp that's being planned for next year. So you can just be uh, informed of what's being planned and be involved in that. Looking forward to, uh, yeah, to being ministered to and to minister God's word and to be uh, receiving all that he would have to be using our gifts for his glory. And so that's a great opportunity to do that looking ahead. Uh, So we'll be in Genesis 50, wrapping up Genesis today. I've loved Genesis. It's been great. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your power to save that uh, you are there. You, you are the God who was, who is, and is to come, that we can rely upon you, that your word is trustworthy, that you give us the words of life, and where else should we turn to? And forgive us, Lord, when we have looked elsewhere for wisdom, when we have gone the way of the world to try to find peace and prosperity that's only found through Jesus Christ and through faith in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would minister your truth to our lives, that we would respond, we would return to you, we would seek your face and wait on you and uh, trust you that what you've said you will be faithful to perform. And so, Lord, we come to you now as your children, as those who are hungry and thirsty, and uh, we pray you would fill us, that you would fi- we would find satisfaction in you and that you'd be glorified in and through our lives and our fellowship here today in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I've learned, probably the hard way, is uh, when you're buying something, to consider the return policy. Um, when I was a kid, they talked about the future and what it would be like, and they talked about, you can, you'll be able to order things and just have them brought right to your house, and that's actually happened. That's one of the few things that has actually happened that they talked about. Um, but I've learned the hard way, being out of pocket, you've received the wrong items or something you can't use, and you paid to send it back, and you never got the thing that you, you actually ordered. Has that ever happened to anyone else but me? Like, so, yeah, we've, we've had that happen where they're like, send it back. Well, then we'll send the replacement, and lo and behold, it's gone. You don't even have the thing you can't use. Um, and there's companies that boast these hassle-free returns, and the reason why they say that is because returns can be a huge hassle. Uh, it's time and expense and frustration and... Um, you find out that the company you ordered from doesn't even offer money back, but just store points. And you're like, how could that be? I got lured in by these good prices, and now I just have points? There's nothing that you have that I want. And uh, yeah, just kind of working through that. So a return policy, a good one, it's like the chance of a do-over. It's like you get your stuff back, I get my money back, and it's like it never happened. We can just move on, you can continue doing business, I can take my money elsewhere, and we'll just be happy. But we know that God uh, 
doesn't allow do-overs in life. As much as we'd love that, we have the opportunity to return to him, though, to receive of his goodness and his grace. And that's something we're going to read about today in Genesis 50. So it's, it includes the, the end of Jacob and Joseph. Genesis began with God creating the heavens and the earth. He made Adam a living soul, and the perfect life that God created was disrupted and destroyed by sin. God had told Adam in Genesis 3.19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And I'm sure there were days when Adam and Eve, after they were cast out of Eden, where they wished they could return to better days. They could return to the, before the point they fell for Satan's lies, and uh, they disobeyed God. Like, if I could just go back to how things were, and they wanted to. But even returning to the garden was impossible because it was guarded by this flaming sword that went every which way. So they couldn't even go back to the place where they had those fond memories. Adam, Jacob, Joseph, they all learned that life does not offer do-overs and as much as we'd like to avoid hard times and difficult seasons by going back to happier or more carefree days, you know, it's not in returning to a point in time. It's not returning to a place, but it's in returning to the Lord that we experience the abundant life and blessing that we never bargained for by his grace. And that's what's so awesome about our, by our God, because he's a gracious God. He's given us life when we didn't ask for it. He's given us hope and salvation and forgiveness that we could never bargain for, and he's just extended to us out of, as a free gift from his loving kindness to us. And so there's hope for us. There's the eternal life in the face of death, because our God is the God of the living. And this chapter begins immediately after Jacob's passing, starting in Genesis 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned him for him seventy days. Last chapter, Jacob blessed all of his sons. He died after living 17 years in Egypt. It says that Joseph wept over him and God's promise came to pass. He said, your son is going to put his hand upon your eyes. So he was there at his passing and Joseph did what was customary in Egypt was to prepare the body for burial with this uh, pretty elaborate embalming process. Joseph, we see he had personal servants who were fit physicians and it was an expensive task. It was a long task. It took 40 days. Um, from what I've read, depending on what you could afford, there were different ways you could embalm the body. I'm sure that Joseph spared no expense. And uh, so they would prepare the body by dehydrating it with uh, natron, which is a nat naturally occurring substance. It's sodium carbonate decahydrate is what it's called. But you would use it to you'd remove the organs. You would dry out the body so that it would be preserved then you would wrap it with hundreds of meters of linen with uh, gum or resin and preserve it. And it's noted that they mourned Jacob for seven days. That's about the same period of time they would mourn a pharaoh. And that's like two and a half months of mourning. 
In 17 years as a foreigner, Joseph made a really good impression upon the Egyptians. They traditionally viewed shepherds as what? An abomination. So he comes there as a shepherd. They mourned him. They mourned him more than the children of Israel mourned the passing of their own king, King Jehoram, who the Bible says did evil. After he became king, it says that Jehoram strengthened himself by killing his brothers and he led the nation to ruin in their idolatry. And then ultimately he was struck by an incurable, struck by God with an incurable disease. And 2 Chronicles 21.20 says this, he was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. So Jehoram was a man with money and power and he had royal status, but it did nothing to endear himself to his subjects. In contrast, you have Jacob, a shepherd, coming into Egypt as a foreigner who is mourned for 70 days. God caused him to find favor in this land because he feared God, and they were sorry to see this godly man depart. And it's the manner of our lives that will determine if people mourn our passing or if they say good riddance as life goes on. And those who fear God, like Jacob, they're blessed to find favor in the sight of God and man. And we see that in Jacob's life. Great testimony of God's faithfulness. Verse four, and when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the house of the Pharaoh saying, if now I found, have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying, behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. After the 70 days of mourning had passed, Joseph sent word to the house of the Pharaoh to ask permission to go to Canaan to bury his father Jacob there in the family tomb. And it's likely he didn't appear before the king in person because he was still wearing uh, articles. He wasn't appropriately dressed for the occasion. Remember when he was in prison, he had been and was being brought before the king. He was shaved. He put on clean clothes and was brought before him. And he likely was going to be in mourning until he buried his father, until the whole process was over. So he sent some messengers, and then they reported to Pharaoh, who then said, yes, go ahead. And he said, I will come back. Like, I'm not going away permanently, but I will return. And Pharaoh granted permission. Now, notice how, what Joseph appeals to in his request. He says, if now I have found favor or grace in your eyes. So he's not suggesting that Pharaoh owed him anything. Like, well, I've done a lot for this kingdom. I think I've deserved a bit of a break. Or I should be able to go to Canaan. And, you know, I, I've been serving you for all this time, 17 years plus. No, he just says, if I found grace in your sight, if I found favor in your sight. And so he, he, he acknowledges Pharaoh's rule over him, God's rule over him, and communicated his need. And it's so good for us, better than claiming our rights before God or man, we should appeal to God's grace to guide us, to provide for all of our needs, and to walk in humility before all. For though he was a great man, he was still under God, and he was humble before him. Verse seven, so Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house. 
Only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. And they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is deep, a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Joseph, this very large contingency of Egyptians and family, they travel from Egypt. It says, all of Joseph's brothers, all of Pharaoh's servants, all the elders of the land of Egypt. So it's a great gathering, and there's chariots and horsemen. It's a long journey from Goshen to the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. That's some 400 kilometers as the crow flies. So they were traveling a great distance. Uh, and it says their little ones, likely the mothers too, and their flocks and herds remained in Goshen, in the land of Egypt. So it showed their intention for them to come back. They were going to return to their families and their goods. So they crossed the Jordan into Canaan, and at the threshing floor of Atad, it says they mourned Jacob an additional seven days. So that was a long period of mourning, and this gathering of largely Egyptian mourners caught the attention of the Canaanites, and they're like, man. This is a really serious mourning, that all these Egyptians would be mourning uh, a death. And so it was called Abel Mizraim, which means meadow of Egypt. Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes 3.1. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And then in verse 4, it says a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. In our modern westernized culture, we tend to avoid mourning like the plague. Would you agree? We tend to hide our tears, or if we become overcome with emotion, we might apologize that we're almost imposing ourselves on someone else because we're, we're sorrowful, because we're mourning or weeping. Weeping, it's not considered manly. It's, it may be considered by some even to be weak something to be despised or embarrassed about rather than respected. But in Joseph, we see he was not ashamed to weep over his father. He, he wept frequently. Um, he wept during those 70 days of mourning, during that, those sev the 70 days, the seven days, and even after, I'm sure he wept his loss. He mourned long, but not as one without hope in God. And just because you have hope in God doesn't mean that you can forego mourning because there's a time to weep and there is a time to mourn. Do you know that comfort is the mourner's privilege? Comfort is the mourner's privilege. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. If we don't mourn, Will we be comforted? So there's something to giving place and a season for mourning. Not mourning in hopelessness, not mourning that uh, in despair, but there is a place for mourning even as someone who fears God and trusts him. We don't have to feel happy all the time. Our tendency is to mourn for ourselves, to mourn our sense of loss, and to do that more than mourning for our own sin the sins of others, or even the nation. That's something that we may never even thought that we should be mourning over. But it's something biblically that we see happening. 
Mourning sin with tears is evidence that we're receivers of God's grace through the Spirit. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, we're told that some people, they saw him die, and it says they hit their chest and go, oh, like that's too bad, and they went away. That was the end of it for them. But this is what God said in Zechariah 12.10. He said, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. When God's people receive the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, they will see Jesus for who he is and they will mourn that they condemned him, that they crucified him, that they rejected of him. There will be a day that comes when Jewish people will recognize the nation that they, they will mourn that choice that was made those many years ago and that they have rejected him even until now and that they will mourn and grieve him. Now, believers, we are told in Hebrews 3, 7, harden not your hearts. And a hard heart does not even feel to grieve. It hinders us from mourning, mourning our sin. It moves us past feeling. And I read this by a Puritan named Thomas Watson. He said, while the, heart is, while the wax is hard, it will not take the impression of the seal. The heart, while it is hard, will not take the stamp of grace it must first be made tender and melting. The plow of the word will not go upon a hard heart. Hell is full of hard hearts. There is not one soft heart there. There is weeping, but no softness. So to have this soft, humble heart that's broken by sin, that mourns our sin. Tears alone, that's not a symbol of spirituality at all. But Jesus, he was moved to tears and God is moved by tears. Remember Jesus, he's looking over the nation and he's like, you didn't know the day of your visitation. And he wept over them. He wept over their sin and their unbelief. And if he wept over theirs, he had no sin of his own to weep over. But we ought to be moved with this brokenness of heart, this mourning that we have offended a holy God. Mourning doesn't always include tears. But God has respect to the brokenhearted. And there's that blessing and comfort to those who mourn. Genesis 50 verse 12. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. Now, Joseph and his brothers, they did what their father had commanded them to bury him in the family tomb. I think about those perhaps of low character. It was like, oh yeah, dad, we'll do what you say, but then dad's gone. And they're like, what's the difference? How does he know? He doesn't know and may not carry through with fulfilling their word because it saves time, it saves expense and uh, effort and it's commendable what they did. They actually did what they said they would do. Their dad asked them to do something. They said yes, and they did it. Even though he wasn't there with them, his body was left behind and embalmed, but they kept their word. 
And it's commendable that we would do all that our Savior has commanded us, even though Jesus isn't physically with us on the planet right now. It's the love of Christ that compels us, not my feelings of love for him, but the love that I've received from him. It's his love for me that compels me to serve him, to obey him. Not out of duty or I have to, or out of guilt, those motives would be out of love. His love for me that moves me. He's demonstrated his love to me. So Joseph, he kept his word to his dad by burying him in Canaan, and he kept his word to Pharaoh and returned. They did not delay to return. It's like Joseph was not like the son in the parable who says, he's like, son, work with me in my vineyard. And he's like, I go, sir. But then the day came and he was nowhere to be found, not in the vineyard. He didn't show up. You know, God's made many promises. Not one word has failed of his promise to us. He tarries. He's still quick to hear and he helps all those who cry out to him. I like this prayer of Daniel and God's response in Daniel 9, verse 18 and 19. So Daniel's thinking about this time of captivity. He's realizing it's coming to an end. And so he's praying to God that God would keep his word. Daniel 9, 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplication before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God. For your city and your people called, are called by your name. And then he goes on after this prayer to say, as he was speaking, as he was confessing his sin and the sins of the people, that the angel Gabriel showed up, having flown swiftly and touched him. And he said, when you started praying at the very beginning, the command from God came and I was on the way. Isn't that what you want when you pray? That when you pray to God, there's this immediate response where God's like, all right, go, do, forgive, heal. Do these things that I've called you to do. And it's like, yeah, I, I would really appreciate God answering. And I know he does answer. We want God to respond to us quickly. We want to, to be forgiven, to be healed, to be helped and comforted. And if God would do that for us, well, we ought to respond without delay when he tells us to do something, right? We should be obedient to him. We should be responsive to him. When he says, go, we go. We trust, we trust and keep our word. Praise the Lord, he answers prayer. And it's so good when we pray what we know is his will to heal, to forgive, to help and comfort. It's faith that does so. Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. After the passing of Jacob, the brothers are like, hmm, now that dad's gone, I wonder if Joseph's going to take his revenge on us for all the terrible things we've done to him. Maybe out of respect to our father, he's waited, he's bided his time. He didn't want to upset the old fellow, but now that he's gone, 
Now in his position of power, he is going to take vengeance. He's gonna repay us for the evil we've done. And they likely only thought this because this is what some of them would have done. They would have bided their time. They would have picked their shot. They would have taken aim and they would have taken revenge in time. So they, they don't go to Joseph. They send messengers to Joseph. They say, hey, Joseph, your father before he died. They're playing on his emotions. They know that he's mourned his father's death, whom he loves. Now, we're not told if Jacob actually said this or if they made up the story to prey on his emotions. And they made it so personal, right? They're like, um, before your father, not our father, but your father, your dad said this, the dad that you love. And then, you know, the, the God of your father. Like you, you want to honor God, right? The fear of man can prompt us to say shameful things, to play the coward, to manipulate others with emotional appeals. Now, I don't know if this story is like if it's legitimate or not, but um, we'll see Joseph's response. It says he wept. Now, I don't know why he wept. We're not told why he wept. It wasn't uncommon, as we've spoken, for him to do so. But it's no coincidence that Joseph is a man filled with the Holy Spirit, never far from tears, because he had a soft heart. He had a tender heart that cared deeply for God and others, and he may have wept at the memory of his father. Or out of grief for his brothers, that they still were burdened with guilt and shame, though he had forgiven them. Maybe upset that it's like, guys, I've told you, you're forgiven. I'm not out to get you anymore. Why do you concoct a story like this? Or maybe he was just moved. Like, I can't say exactly, but I, because I have to sometimes speak to think, it's helpful for me to say, well, why would he weep in that situation? Why might I weep in that situation? It would be sad to say, man, brothers, I've forgiven you. I'm not out to get you. I've shown you kindness for these 17 years. And yet you still are burdened with guilt. I'm weeping for you. You're still feeling shame over what you've done decades ago. And you've been forgiven. Why? Joseph had released them from wrongdoing, but they were still burdened with guilt. Now, brothers and sisters, we've received forgiveness from the living God by the blood of Jesus, we don't need to be plagued with guilt and shame and the fear of punishment. Like God is out to get us. He's just looking for us to stuff up again so he can justify smiting us. Well, if that was the case, he would have done that long ago or he said, you will never be born. But he's not like that. He is gracious and compassionate and he delights to show mercy. He's extended grace to everyone. You're happy to receive eternal life. Well, how about receiving forgiveness? How about receiving fr freedom from guilt and shame that's burdening you over what you've done? Think about what Jesus has done, that he's forgiven. He's paid the price. Trust him. Don't be in unbelief anymore about that he's still holding this against you. Receive that forgiveness. Walk in newness of life by his grace. And that promotes humility in us, not pride. Genesis 50, verse 18. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? 
But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. His brothers sent the messengers. Once Joseph's been put in that, you know, state of mind, then they come and they bow before him and they pledge their service to him as, as it was in his dream many years before. And two times, Joseph repeats, do not be afraid. Don't fear. It was evident to him they were afraid. They were afraid of his power. They were afraid of retribution. But he's just the sort of person you want as a leader because he was someone under God, in submission to God, not trying to play God. And he says, am I in the place of God? He understood that vengeance and revenge, that's God's sovereign territory. That's God's, he will repay. And those who fear God ought not to avenge themselves, even if we have the power and opportunity to do so. If we take vengeance on our enemies to give retribution to those who have harmed us or offended us, it's really a pathetic attempt in unbelief to wrench the scepter out of God's hand and to shove him off the throne and to sit down in his judgment seat. And God will not allow that folly to go unpunished. He will teach us. He will chasten us. Joseph had not forgotten the evil that was done him. He didn't go, oh, you didn't mean it. Oh, he knew they meant it. They meant it for evil. But God had other plans that overruled their plans. By faith in God, he forgave them. And notice he's like, you know, like I forgive you, get lost. No, he's like, I forgive you, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to give words of comfort to you. That's forgiveness. That's what forgiveness looks like. And then he shares this amazing truth about God's sovereignty and goodness. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now for a born again follower of Jesus Christ, this is true concerning every bad thing that happens to us. We learn this through our study of Job. That through Job's suffering, God planned to reveal his compassion and mercy. Satan wanted Job to curse God and die. He wanted Job to suffer. But God redeemed those attacks to bless him doubly in the end and to reveal himself to Job. There's no question Joseph's brothers hated him and they wanted to hurt him. But at the same time, God meant it for good. They wanted to kill Joseph, but God wanted to save people through Joseph. Think of Satan, right? He, had, he moved Judas and the religious leaders to betray Christ, to arrest him, to falsely accuse him, and to crucify him. Out of envy, they delivered him to the Romans to be brutally killed. Yet God meant something different, right? He wanted to, through that suffering and crucifixion, to forgive sinners and to save them forever. It requires eyes of faith to see how God redeems what others mean for evil for good. His brothers couldn't see it, but Joseph could see it through faith, and he instructed his brothers, and he teaches us as well. 
that we can look upon our lives and think about, well, the bad things that have happened to me, the terrible things we've experienced and gone through, we may not be able to see one good thing that's come out of those painful moments. The, the trials, the loss, the betrayals. And sometimes we give people the benefit of the doubt. We say, well, they didn't really mean it. Or they were just going through a hard time. That's why they said those things. We kind of justify it. But how about giving God the benefit of the faith? Saying that God is able to redeem this terrible, awful thing for good because he loves me. Because he has good purposes that Satan cannot overcome. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing happens outside of his control. This week I I spoke to my parents. My dad's going through a major illness. And a big takeaway through speaking with both of them is that when we start looking to God in our trouble and pain, he opens our eyes to see good in a bad situation. You know, a situation's bad. It's bad when you're sick. It's terrible when you have pain, when you have a, a poor medical prognosis. But God remains good, and he will use that situation for good, and we have evidence of this throughout scripture. I mean, it's amazing that God can use that bad thing that someone intends to be terrible to use it for good. And not just your good, but the good for other people as well. And we can swing in our navigating through and processing through this. We can focus on the bad situation. Or we can be obsessed of what good could possibly come out of this bad. And we kind of do these mental gymnastics. We're like, well, if it resulted in this way, that would be a good trade. Like, at, at least if this happened through this bad thing, I could be okay with it. Well, what happens when you don't see that thing? How about looking to God and believing his promises and saying, my God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. As it says in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Trying to look for good in a bad situation, that leads to hopelessness and despair. There's no satisfaction there. There's no peace there. It's not going to happen in your mind or by playing on your emotions. It's in the Lord. It's through faith in him that we find peace and rest and comfort. For his children, God always has good purposes in any evil he allows. We can't bring good out of evil, but God can. We can't bring life out of death, but God can. We can't bring blessing out of suffering, but God does. The question is not what good God has brought out of something, but if we'll trust God or we'll play God. We will decide what's good and what's bad. Well, how about we trust him? How about we rest in him? Genesis 50, verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham to Isaac and Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph remained in Egypt for the remainder of his life, living 80 years in Egypt 
uh, after he was second ruler to Pharaoh. He lived to be a great-great-grandfather. It says that he brought up or his sons were born on his knees. That word brought up and born, it's like he, it was a tradition that when a child was born, the newborn infant would be placed on the knees of the parents to show that they were being accepted into the family. We see this with Rachel and Bilhah, how she says, I want to have children, um, I want her to bear children on my knees. So it's the idea that my concubine is going to have this child, but it's going to be my child. I'm going to be the parent of this child. And so just like Jacob took Ephraim and Manasseh and says, they're going to be mine, Joseph did a similar thing for the children of Ephraim and Manasseh. Like his father before him, there came a point where Joseph's life reached the end. He knew he was dying, that his life was going to end. And he knew, though, that God would surely visit them. He said that twice, that he would bring them out of Egypt. He would cause them to return to Canaan, the land that he swore to give them. And we read in Hebrews eleven twenty two, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Now, it's common for people to make preparations for their own burial before death. Joseph made travel plans for his bones. He's like, you're going to carry me. God's going to visit you. And when he does, I want you to carry my bones out of this place and take them back to Canaan. And we see that Moses remembered and made good on this promise. Uh, hundreds of years later in Exodus 13, 19, it says, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. He had already been gathered to his fathers, but he's like, hey, you're going to carry my bones out of this place. Um, it was important for both Jacob and Joseph to have their bodies returned to the land that God promised to give them. Their faith was not in their children keeping their word, but in God who would visit them, whose word never fails. Now, maybe you have a desire to depart to another country or a place in time before, before your body returns to the dust. I don't know that really any of us will, well, who knows? make plans for where our bones should go in three or 400 years' time. Um, but you know, what's most important for all of us is that we return to the Lord, as we sang today. We need to return to him. His faithful servants can stumble and fall. Egypt was a place that they were never to return to, but we see that the children of Israel did. And during the days of Jeremiah, they're like all, should we go? He's like, don't go to Egypt oh, you're just saying that. And they, they went back to Egypt. But you know, let's turn to this exhortation in Hosea 14. Hosea chapter 14, starting in verse 1. And while this is written to Israel, it is um, very fitting for us. It's so important we return to the Lord before we die. We will return to the dust but let's return to him. We have a choice about that. Hosea 14, verse 1, it says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. So return to the Lord. How do we do that? Well, by confessing sin, by asking for his gracious acceptance 
offering praise and thanksgiving for him fulfilling his word and for the goodness he's shown us. Even the things we have intended for evil, God can make good from them. So you'll, you'll accept that where it's like, well, all things work together for good to those who have loved God, to them, but also of them. God will redeem. He is a redeemer. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So let us mourn, but not without hope, because we have a Savior who has paid for our transgressions in full with his own blood, and he's drawn us to ourself, and we have comfort only in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for your will to save, to forgive, to heal, to help us. And, and Lord, if we are one of those, or we're in a season right now, we'd love to return to another place or another season, or another point in time, yet here we are. And I pray, Lord, that we would find uh, solace and comfort only in you, that we would return to you uh, more than returning to any thinking that there's satisfaction anywhere else but in you. Lord, I thank you for the testimony of your people in Scripture, of Joseph, his heart to forgive, and for Jesus, who wept um, how he felt deeply um, pain, and yet he had faith in God. He trusted and, and has all faith. And pray, Lord, that we would be like him as we follow Jesus, that we would be those who mourn, who, who mourn but not without hope, who mourn our sin, who come before you with uh, supplications and requests, knowing that you will answer, knowing that you will speedily respond to our cries because your ears are open and you are ready and you have purposes and plans for every season under heaven. Thank you that your purposes are good. Thank you that you are a redeemer and a savior and that we have real hope, not just hope in this life, but hope forever in your presence. And I pray we would lay hold of that, that we would let go of guilt and shame um, that you have pardoned us for. We would not live as Joseph's brothers who were always fearing retribution, but that we would receive your comfort today and we would rest in your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.